Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. I will trust your promise. Our Lord God, this evening as we come to these words of the Lord Jesus, would you give us open ears and open hearts to hear his word of promise and his word of warning and to believe it, and take it seriously, and live in the light of it, in his name. Amen. Well, uh, I think as human beings, that it's very natural to us to live in the light of the future. I read a book a few years ago called that, Live in the Light of the Future, and the more I think about it, it's a very normal thing for us as human beings. Uh, I have a friend who was offered a training contract uh, with a law firm in London, um, but being um, popular and um, oversubscribed for people they wanted to offer training contracts to, they told him he had to wait two years before he could start. And so it was definite, it was in the diary, but he had two years um, working a number of um, quite, um, quite difficult, not very enjoyable jobs. Uh, he went travelling for a bit, um, he did a number of things, but all the time living in the light of what was to come just two years down the line. And um, when we've got big dates in the diary, uh, whether, it's, um, whether it's exams at the end of the year, sorry to mention those, or um, a big holiday to come, whether it's a wedding, the birth of a child, a new job, or retirement, uh, when we have a big date in the diary, it's very natural for us that our expectations about day-to-day life are shaped by it, the kind of things that we can bear and put up with are shaped by it. What we expect to happen day by day is affected by it. And here in Luke 21, Jesus is talking about one date that should be fixed in the future in everyone's mind, a date that is fixed in God's diary, which is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to hold the world to account the day of God's judgment and justice, the day when everyone will stand before God and give an account of their life. And Luke 21 is really all about um, Jesus telling his followers how that future date should shape their expectations of life here and now, every day. How um, How should it help us to live? How do we live in the light of that future Uh, The first thing that we see is the certainty of God's future judgment. The certainty of God's future judgment. Um, The occasion is this great debate that's been happening in the temple, this great discussion, dialogue between Jesus and the religious authorities. It's been heated, it's been involved. And as um, Jesus and his disciples are are sort of making their way out, uh, verse five, some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. They're very impressed by the scale and wonder of the temple. You know, for all that the temple's leaders are standing against Jesus, the temple itself is a glorious thing. But Jesus is rather more downbeat, isn't he? Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. 
And it's a shocking statement. It's actually, it's, it's hard for us to feel the shock of what Jesus is saying here because um, the temple is not a daily reality in our lives. Um, it, it, it's, a bit like, um, it's a bit like if Jesus had said the Houses of Parliament, Buckingham Palace, and um, I don't know, Sheffield University are all going to be flattened and there will be nothing left. That's the sort of shock we're talking about. The temple was a huge and impressive building. It was something um, close to 45 metres high. The stones that Jesus says will be turned over, some of them weighed close to 100 tonnes. It's a big and impressive building. And so it's a shocking statement. But more than that, it's shocking because of how hugely symbolic the building is. It's the place where God had dwelt with the people. Uh, the temple really defines Israel as a nation. You know, it's, um, it's Buckingham Palace being flattened, the Houses of Parliament. The end of the temple was really the end of Israel as the people of God. And so it's a shocking statement. Uh, we've seen in Luke 19 and 20 so far that God in his love had sent his son into the world but it's painfully clear in the conversation that we've been following, if you've been with us, that those he was sent to rejected him. His people didn't want him. Oh, back in that, um, that um, painfully clear parable of the tenants, back in um, Luke 20, verse 16, uh, sorry, verse 15, <laughs> third time lucky, Verse 14, when the tenants saw him, they talked it over. This is the heir, they said. Let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. See, Jesus had pointed out very clearly that when God sends his son, the, the, the leaders of Israel and the people they represented did not want him. Jesus had wept in Luke 19 over the hard-heartedness of these people and had said that God will reject him them the temple being torn down was a clear sign of the judgment and rejection of God on this people who had rejected him and so the disciples ask a very reasonable question verse 7 teacher they said when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're about to take place and now you probably noticed when it was being read the answer that uh, Jesus gives is, is a detailed one and in some ways quite a complex one. And um, the good news for me is that I'm going to leave quite a lot of the difficult details for Paul Williams, our vicar, to speak on next week. Uh, we're we're going to hug um, mostly to the first half of the passage down to verse 19. But the heart of Jesus' answer is that there are really two events, two horizons and one points to the other. So they say, when's it going to happen? What's the sign? And Jesus talks about um, a judgment on Jerusalem, the temple being pulled down. Have a look at verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. But Jesus also says that there will be a future judgment of the whole world, that the judgment of Jerusalem points forward to a bigger day when God will hold the whole world to account. 
Uh, Have a look at verse 27 for that horizon. Verse 27, at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Or verse 35, have a look at that. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Uh, We're having some building work done on our house at the moment. And um, before the first builder arrived and before the first digger came into our back garden, um, the, uh, the architect sent us some plans that showed us the outline of what things would look like. And you could look at the pictures and you could see what was going to happen a few months down the line when the builders had finished. And that's the sort of idea that you have here in Jesus' answer. You have um, uh, God holding Jerusalem to account for the way that they have rejected his son. And Jesus says that is a picture, a scale model, an illustration that shows us with certainty that God will hold the world to account for the way that we've treated his son. In AD 70 these words about Jerusalem came true. Jesus' words were fulfilled as the Roman armies came and took over Jerusalem and tore down the temple and not one stone was left standing on another, just as Jesus had said. And Jesus is saying, when you see that happen, it's a sign, a picture, you will know that God is going to hold the whole world to account in just the same way. And I know there are some here this evening who will say that just sounds totally implausible. I mean, who believes that sort of thing? Who believes in a God who will judge the world in this day and age? And yet, do we not long for justice? I was reading an article this week by a Christian pastor describing the abuse that he suffered as a child. And um, he quotes from an obituary. It's quite striking reading. Let me read. This is from a newspaper a couple of years ago. Marianne Theresa Johnson Reddick was born January the 4th, 1935, and died alone on September the 30th, 2013. She's survived by six of her eight children whom she spent her lifetime torturing in every way possible. While she neglected and abused her small children, she refused to allow anyone else to care or show compassion towards them. When they become adults, when they became adults, she stalked and tortured anyone they dared to love. Everyone she met, adult or child, was tortured by her cruelty and exposure to violence, criminal activity, vulgarity, and hatred of the gentle or kind human spirit. On behalf of her children, whom she so abrasively exposed to her evil and violent life, we celebrate her passing from this earth. Her surviving children will now live the rest of their lives with the peace of knowing their nightmare finally has some form of closure. When we hear about children, preschoolers, living in terrible fear of what their parents might do to them, is there not something in our hearts that cries out for justice? 
and for something to be done. And you know, if, um, if you don't believe in a God, then perhaps you can say with Richard Dawkins, the atheist, that there's no meaning or justice. Some people just get lucky and others get hurt. But if you believe in a God, surely it is implausible to think that he wouldn't care about injustice and pain in our world and hold it to account. Jesus said that God loves people so much that he takes what we do and the things that are done to us with great seriousness. And when we look at the history books and we see AD 70 that he held Jerusalem to account, we know that he will hold our world to account for the way that we have treated his son and the way that we have treated those made in his image. And wonderfully, of course, we see in the next few chapters of Luke's gospel that God loved the world so much that he not only holds our actions accountable, but that he came in the person of his son to die so that we could be forgiven and welcomed on that day of his justice. But let me say, we need to be clear about this day in our minds. We need to be clear that you have many dates in your diary You have things that are firmly booked that you are certain will happen and none of them is as certain as the fact that Jesus will return and hold our world to account. History is heading somewhere. Things will not always carry on in the way that they always have. Day will not follow day. A day will come when the clock will stop, time will run out and the end will come. And those who trust in the Lord Jesus and his death for them will be welcomed in. And those who reject the Lord Jesus will face the judgment of God. And we need to be certain about that day. And Jesus really spends um, the rest of our passage um, helping us see how that future certainty should shape our expectations about life today, here and now. So two ways that it should shape our expectations. Um, Firstly, it shapes our expectations about the timing of God's future judgment. The timing of God's future judgment. Have a look at verse 8 with me. Jesus replied, Watch out that you're not deceived, for many will come in my name, claiming I am he, the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened, These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Jesus says that there will be people and events which make us think, it's the end of the world, this is it. And Christians are not to be naive or misled. We're not to be worried about this sort of thing. We're to understand the timing that this day will, the end, will not come right away. Let's think about people just for a moment. Uh, Jesus says, verse 8, many will come in my name. And the history of the church has been full of this being fulfilled, of people claiming to come from God or claiming to have some special knowledge about when the end will come. Uh, Whether it's Muhammad or Nostradamus or Joseph Smith or the Jehovah's Witnesses, history is littered with those who claim special access to God more than what Jesus said and who claim to have some special knowledge about when the end will come. And Jesus says, you don't need more than what I've taught you. Don't follow them. Don't listen to them. Uh, Jesus said that his return is certain and imminent, but that no one knows the day or the hour except the Father. And here are people who say you need something more 
And Jesus says we're not to be surprised by that. We're not to be naive about that. We're not to be stressed or worried by that. We're just not to listen. Do not follow them. Uh, I had a friend at my last church who um, was convinced that he could map all of the details of um, world politics since 1945 onto the book of Revelation. And so he would regularly say to me, Andy, it's coming soon. It's this year Jesus is coming back. And Jesus says we're to have nothing to do with that sort of profoundly unhelpful teaching. Uh, We're not to believe or follow those who say, I know more than Jesus has said. People, but also events. Look again at verse 10. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. Now, I wonder, would you say, are you more of an optimist or a pessimist about how the world is doing at the moment? Uh, of course, the, um, the big story of secular humanism is a very optimistic one. People are just getting better. With new technology, we can make poverty history. If only we'd give peace a chance, things could really get better. And you know, lots of people are very, pessimi- uh, very optimistic about how the world is doing. Uh, I also meet plenty of people who are deeply pessimistic about the world they see. Plenty of Christians, particularly, um, look out at global terror and natural disasters and um, a country that seems to be moving further and further away from Christian truth, and they feel like the world's gone mad and everything seems to be worse than it ever was. And Jesus says, don't be naive. Don't be naively optimistic. Don't be naively pessimistic every age between the day that Jesus walked on earth and the day he returns will be marked by people who have turned their backs on the Lord God and so of course harm those who bear his image Christian you're not to be surprised when you see terrible things in the news that's not to say Christians shouldn't be committed to alleviating suffering and poverty wherever we can but we shouldn't have the hubris to think that we can make poverty history. And we shouldn't be terrified when we see awful things happen. Five features Jesus said, says we should expect. Verse 10, um, national conflicts, natural disasters, famine, disease, and other inexplicable terrors. We live in a world that's turned its back on God and faces the consequences of that, a broken world. It's not getting better. It's also not getting worse. It's in rebellion and God is going to come and fix it and hold it accountable. Don't be terrified by the world you see in the news or the world that you see around you. Live in the light of the future. God is coming back to bring justice, and yes, to bring hope to those who trust him. And so we're not to be worried, we're not to be concerned, we're not to think these things are the end of the world. Live in the light of the future. And so that's the first implication. Uh, The second big implication in verses 12 to 19 regards our witness until God's final judgment. Our witness until God's final judgment. Just have a look at verse 12 with me. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. 
They'll deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. Jesus says living in the light of that future day means that this is what you can expect as the normal Christian life. Bearing witness to Jesus and being opposed for it. Being persecuted for following him and bearing witness because of it. Jesus says that's the normal Christian life. That is our expectation as we wait for the day when Jesus returns. And the fulfillment of this, well, it's been happening all through the history of the Christian church. And just 50 days after Jesus spoke these words, there or thereabouts, about two months, Peter, his closest friend, stood trial before the authorities. Uh, Just two years or so after these words were spoken, Paul, the apostle, stood trial before the authorities again and again before all these Roman authorities before losing his life. Uh, Of course, this year is the, um, the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation. This Tuesday is Reformation Day. I hope you'll all be dressing up as German monks to celebrate it. But just, um, just think for a moment about our English reformers. Wycliffe, who translated the Bible into English, who gave us that great gift, burned at the stake. Cranmer, who gave us Reformation Anglicanism, burned at the stake. Ridley, Latimer, who stood up to the authorities, burned at the stake. Uh, Think of our great evangelical heroes, Whitfield, Wilberforce, Shaftesbury. We love them now, but they were bitterly opposed throughout most of their lifetimes. And Jesus says that is our expectation of the ordinary Christian life, witness and opposition. And yes, the the intensity of persecution will vary from time to time and place to place. And maybe the idea of being hauled on trial and made to stand for your life sounds a pretty um, long way from where we are in Britain. And that's fine because it'll vary from time to time and place to place. Uh, It might be that for someone turning to Jesus in an Islamic country in the Middle East, that they might well be handed over by their family to the authorities and stand trial for their life. But we shouldn't be surprised, even in Sheffield, even in 2017, when our witness to the gospel of the Lord Jesus faces opposition. I was reading yesterday about a young man called Felix Ngole, who was doing a master's at the University of Sheffield. And two years ago, he made comments on his Facebook page in which he quoted what the Bible says about various issues of human sexuality. And the university removed him from his master's course. They failed him. And just this week, the high court upheld that decision as being legal and right. And you should not be shocked about that if you're a Christian because Jesus told you that that's what would happen. Live in the light of the future, Jesus says. His expectation is that we will bear witness that, yes, religious and civil authorities, yes, family and friends may stand against us, but, verse 13, this will result in you being witnesses to them. 
And um, he goes on to say, make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you'll defend yourselves, for I'll give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. I don't think Jesus is saying that you never have to prepare how to explain the gospel to someone. What he's saying is you don't need to worry about your legal defense before you open your mouth and talk to someone about Jesus. How often do we keep quiet because we're frightened of how people will respond? Will it hurt my reputation? Will it hurt my career? Will it hurt me if I speak of Jesus? And Jesus says, make up your mind, actively decide not to worry about that because I'll enable you to bear witness if it comes to that. We were talking about whether there's been enough practical application in this sermon series so far. So here's one. This is a practical application. Tonight, make a conscious decision not to care what your school or university or HR department will say if you openly tell people the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't worry about it. Make that decision And the reason is because we're living in the light of the future. And the idea of not being able to resist or contradict what we're saying, well, Jesus is talking about the end, isn't he? He's saying, on the day that Jesus returns as king, if you've told the people around you that he is king and saviour, well, there'll be no contradicting that fact. There'll be no resisting it. There'll be no second-guessing it. And so bear witness, he will help us. But more than that, have a look at verse 17. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. Does he live in the light of the future? There is a future certain day, and in light of that... Well, he can't mean not a hair on your head will perish now because he's just been saying that you'll be dragged on trial and some of you will be killed. But on that day, not a hair of your head will perish. It's a word that means be destroyed. It's what the religious leaders wanted to do to Jesus. And Jesus says, well, you might die, but they can't touch you eternally. Stand firm, stick with Jesus And on the day he comes back, you'll be welcomed to eternal life. Not because of something you've done, but because you've trusted him. You've stuck with his death on the cross for you. But it's a challenging mindset, isn't it? This living in the light of the future. Uh, There's a great guy from the early church called Justin Martyr. I'll give you three guesses what happened to Justin Martyr. Any thoughts on that one? He um, He was sharing the gospel with a friend from, um, I I think, Germany. But um, this friend reported him to the Roman authorities, and he was arrested, and standing before the emperor, he said these words, you can kill us, but you cannot do us any real harm. You can kill us, but you cannot do us any real harm. Jesus says, not a hair on your head will perish. By standing firm, you'll gain life. Live in the light of the future. Is it conceivable to us that you could lose your life for the gospel? But it's okay because you will not have lost anything of true value. You won't perish. Jesus says that that day is certain. 
There are lots of dates in your diary. There are things that are fixed. There are things that you know are definitely going to happen, but none of them is as certain as the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to welcome in those who've trusted him and to judge those who've rejected him. And we're to live in the knowledge of that certainty. We're not to get stressed about timing, to be worried and freaked out by events that we see around us. We're not to be naive like that. We're to boldly bear witness, even in the face of opposition, knowing that he's coming back. Let me pray. Our Lord God, would you please grant us that certainty and fix our eyes on that future day so that our expectations about tomorrow morning and this week and this month and this year might be right and that we might stand firm without worry. In Jesus' name, amen.